Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. Do you want to dive deeper into this story? Do you want to get episodes early and listen without ads? Well, you get all of that and more for as little as $5 a month. Go to dakotaspotlight.com and check out Spotlight Plus. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is the fifth episode in a summer series of interviews with podcast producers from around the world and other people looking for answers and seeking justice. This episode contains some very serious adult subject matter. If you have kids around, maybe you should just listen later. This week, we're traveling to the United Kingdom to speak with Dan Box. Dan Box is a crime reporter in the UK, but he spends a lot of his time in Australia. Today, we're going to be talking about the podcast Balraville, which is a project Dan worked on for the newspaper named The Australian. The Balraville podcast investigates the unsolved murders of three Aboriginal children in rural Australia. It's a sometimes fascinating, sometimes frustrating story, and I highly recommend that you listen to it. Again, it's called Balraville, B-O-W-R-A-Ville, V-I-L-L-E. So here is Dan Box to talk about the podcast Balraville. Dan Box, thank you so much for joining me on Dakota Spotlight Podcast. How are you today and where are you today? Hey, I'm good. I am in the north of England, which is where we're living in a former lockdown at the moment. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. Look, it's a real privilege to get to talk to you and to get to talk about this case. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I listened to your podcast and it's, uh, I thought you did a fantastic job. Thank you. Can you tell us, uh, well, a little more about yourself? Did I see this right on Twitter that you're a rock climber or something? Oh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, no great shakes at all. Um, <laughs> I climb a bit, I run a bit, I bike a bit, I swim a bit, like a lot of people. Where we live, and the reason to move to where we do live now is we're in the middle of a national park, so... We've got hill, hills all around us and a great set of cliffs just you can see from the front door of the house. It's kind of one of the it's kind of one of the sacred places of British rock climbing. It's called Stanage. And um, so we're fortunate. We can literally, you know, knock off work. And last night I ran up to the crag and went climbing. It was great. That sounds great. Can you explain your association with the Australian and how you got involved with working in Australia? Or were you born there? Or Yeah, I was. I was born in Sydney. I'm, I'm what they call over there with boomerang pom. So I think it's pretty common. You get these people, English people, so they call them poms. And we go to Australia and we love it, but we've got family at home, so we go back. But we love Australia, so we moved back to Australia, but we've got family at home. So I've done that a few times now, um, boomeranging back and forth. So I was born over there, grew up in the UK, and literally it was a dream. My whole childhood, my dream was to go back to Australia. Um, and Australia was blue skies and beaches and, and, and big horizons. Eventually, I trained as a journalist, and I deliberately chose the university I did my postgrad in newspaper journalism in because it offered a bursary. Like one student got to go and work on this newspaper in Australia called The Australian, which is, it's the Murdoch broadsheet. So it's probably the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal over there. Big emphasis on business, big emphasis on sort of serious reporting. Okay, so can you tell us about 
how you first heard about these murders, because I believe it was several years before you kind of tackled the story. I first heard about these murders when I got an invitation to meet with a homicide detective. And that was unusual back then. I was a crime reporter, and it was never the case that detectives asked to meet you. I mean, my job was constantly asking to meet detectives, trying to take them out for coffees, trying to take them out for drinks, just to talk to them. But in this case, the guy wanted to meet me. So I went and I sat down with him and he told me about a murder. Well, it was three murders, three murders of three children, uh, unsolved in a small country town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales called Bowerville. And this detective, a guy called Gary Jubelin, had been working that case for about 20 years at that point. And... You know, normally if you meet a guy for a coffee, you might be talking for half an hour, an hour. I remember two hours later, we left the cafe and went into the homicide unit and he starts pulling out files. And I'd kind of heard the name Bowerville a bit. You know, I was a crime reporter and it was a big unsolved murder. I should have heard about it, but I'd never thought about it. And at the end of that meeting, I I went back to the office and um, I remember... I was looking at some of these documents he'd copied for me. And one of my colleagues said to me, oh, what are you working on? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, Bowerville. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I know all about those killings. Oh, yeah, yeah, famous case. Turned out he was talking about something completely different, a completely different case that took place thousands of kilometers away. And and this was a case that took place a few hours from where we were sitting. and, And he hadn't heard of it. And it just... It kind of just got me cross, you know. Sure. Here was the murder of three children. Nobody was doing anything about it to the point where the detective was trying to get newspapers interested. And um, I remember talking about it to another colleague who shall remain nameless. And I said to him, I'm thinking of doing something on this. And he said, leave it. You know, it's old. It's cold. It's not going anywhere. Wow. Um, And that, that was a damning indictment as well. Not of kind of 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 the industry really of the media industry you know three kids were murdered no one had gone to jail and no one seemed to be doing anything about it and and eventually i did but it did take me a long time to get around to it sounds like it got in your head and for whatever reason which happens we can't you couldn't get to it at the time or maybe it needed to sort of be an incubator for a little while yeah and then at some point, maybe you couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> let it go or you had to address it, right? You know what it was, was it was podcasting, if I'm honest. Yeah. So I'd, I'd done a little bit for the paper um, and written a few stories, but they ended up on, on the bottom of page two. And if you work in newspapers, the bottom of page two is where the editors put stories that are boring, but they're important. Um because it's up near the front of the book, so it, it, you're kind of saying this is important, but no one's ever going to read the bottom of page two. And I couldn't get it off the bottom of that page. And I wrote a few things, and it wasn't going anywhere. And then podcasting came along, and Serial came along. Yep. And I remember I came back one day to the office, and I just thought, right, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it as a podcast. And the reason is, if we do it as a podcast, you will hear the voices of the people involved talking for themselves. It won't be me taking their words and putting them on a page or using my words to tell their story. You'll hear their words, their voices, their story. And that will get, that will make people care. And so we did. And it worked. 
because you can hear the emotion. You know, things like that, you can't do that on the page. But it's it's irresistible in, in podcasts. It really is. And while we're talking about podcasting, I believe I read a quote of yours. I believe you said reporting on things like this should not be considered entertainment. Do I have that right? Yeah, this is a big thing for me. Um, this is kind of like my lonely campaign. I don't um, think you're alone, but it's taking oh, some, some people a little while to catch up. Well, look, it's really interesting and it's a really difficult minefield because yeah. you're kind of caught between two things. So, okay, I'm talking particularly about true crime here, um, which is which is what I do particularly. I'm a crime reporter by, by training and, and by inclination. So you've got someone's life in your hands. And I mean, not the victim's life, but their family's lives. Right. Um, you go and talk to them. They open up to you. They trust you. They let you into their lives and they tell you about the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to them. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what it's like as a parent to have your child murdered. Um, but they, they trust you with that story. And then it's up to you to go away and tell that story. But some people take that story and they turn it into entertainment. And, you know, I'm not talking about turning it into drama, but you, I mean, you, you'll have heard podcasts and you'll have seen TV documentaries where it's, you know, it's, it's dressed up. It's made into this thing that is, is there really to sell advertising right. or to, to, to grab listeners' attention because it is, it's dressed up into something it's not. And yeah. that makes me really uncomfortable. I mean, it actually makes me really quite sick sometimes. But, because there's kind of a counter argument to that as well, which is that if you're, if you're telling these people's stories, there's a reason to do that, isn't there? You're telling mm -hmm. them because they're in the public interest. You want people to know about this case. Maybe you want the police to pay more attention to it, or you think an injustice has been done and it needs to be righted. So you need to get people to listen to that. And they're not going to listen to that if you do a bad version of telling the story. You have to make it interesting. You have to make it entertaining because you can't expect the listener to do all the work of, of you know, just going through the facts one after the other. So you do have to use some of the tools of entertainment to make this story something that people are going to want to listen to so they will listen to it so you can do your job of making sure people know about this story. So you've got to thread this kind of fine line between making it making it listenable, making people want to listen to it, but you can't just turn you've got to do it for a reason, I think. I think that's how I've I've kind of reconciled it with myself. There's got to be a reason to tell this story. There's this fine line, right? And there's a couple of different parts about it. One yeah. is, I think there's a big difference between an unsolved crime, a missing person, for example, that I'm working on yeah. now, or a, yeah. a murder, an obvious murder that's never been, you know, like the story you're working on, no one's been charged. There, there, there's still work to be done, right? So the more ears, the more eyes on this story, the better chance that that tip will come in that you need. And that's where like what you're talking about, where, you know, the, the more, the more dramatic or the more compelling this story is, the more people will share it. But, but it also, but it also goes back to this is why the detective wanted to meet me at the start when I was a newspaper reporter, because he knew when he's told me since, I mean, I was like, 
coincidentally, I was on the phone with him this morning. We're still in touch. Um, he told me since that the investigations that get resourced in the police are the high profile ones. So if you can get your case on the front page of the newspaper, then the politicians will, will pick that newspaper up and then they'll pick up the phone and they'll ask the police commissioner questions about it. And that trickles down from the police commissioner to the officers under him. And then suddenly the investigation that had no one assigned to it has got a strike force assigned to it and a budget to run it. So there's reasons to get people listening about these cases. Hi again, it's me, James. I just want to tell you about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to the Dakota Spotlight podcast that allows you to listen to these same episodes without ads, and you get access to them before anyone else. Your subscription will also unlock access to exclusive episodes, the Spotlight Plus newsletter, videos, pictures, documents, and more. All at the same time, you will be supporting me and Dakota Spotlight. Please check out Spotlight Plus by going to dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you for your support. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story. Conning the con. Let's talk more about the story. There's three children were murdered within a few months of each other. You want to give us a little more background? Yeah, so there's three children. There's uh, Colleen, she's 16. There's Evelyn, she's four. And Clinton, who is 16. They're all Aboriginal. They all are staying in this one town, Bowerville, and Bowerville's small. Then it was just over a thousand people. But more than that, they're all staying on the same street. And you right. go there and you stand on that street and the houses they're staying in at the time they go missing are a hundred meters apart. Mm -hmm. You know, they all disappear from that small stretch of ground over five months over the same summer. And this is, we're going back a while now. This is the late nineties. Um, and then two of the bodies turn up. Uh, Evelyn and Clinton's bodies are discovered months later and they've been dumped beside a dirt road that leads out of Bowerville and goes up through the, the eucalyptus forest on the hills above it. And then after that, the clothes of Colleen, the 16-year-old girl, are found, they're dragged from a river. But they're dragged from the river where that same road, the one the other two bodies are dumped next to, goes over a bridge. Hmm. So you've got three children disappear who were staying on one road, Three, two bodies and one set of clothes are found essentially next to another road. And the police at the time 
don't treat them as connected crimes. Initially, they don't even really respond. Uh, so Colleen's mum goes and, and tries to report her daughter missing and, you know, can you come back tomorrow? Um, you know, are you sure, you know? I want to clarify a term that Dan and I are about to mention. It's a term, walkabout. According to Wikipedia, walkabout is a rite of passage in Australian Aboriginal society during which males undergo a journey during adolescence, typically ages 10 to 16, and live in the wilderness for a period as long as six months to make a spiritual and traditional transition into manhood. She goes to the police and the police say, maybe they just, they probably just went on a walkabout. That was. Yeah. So this is where you get straightforwardly into racism. Um, walkabout is a term that is probably used more by white people about Aboriginal people than it is by Aboriginal people themselves, at least in my experience. Um, and the idea is that Aboriginal people go on walkabout, meaning they just kind of, at least as white people understand it, they go off and they're doing Aboriginal people things, but they're, they're, they're kind of in the wind. Um, God knows how many Aboriginal people will listen to that description and think I've just said something crude and stupid and potentially offensive. But even that's indicative of the fact that a lot of white people in Australia don't really understand Aboriginal people. Um, in fact, I think most of I think the statistic is that most white people in Australia haven't even met an Aboriginal person. Aboriginal people are the, the indigenous population of the country, but it's a country that was colonised forcibly, so much like America. Um, and there's this huge divide between the two. Um, and so when each of the three children's families go to the police station and try and report their children missing, they're each told the same thing. Are you sure your kid hasn't just gone walkabout? Maybe they've just gone walkabout. Which is, it's a way, it shows you that the police, A, don't understand the Aboriginal culture they're meant to police. And it also kind of shows you that they're coming up with an excuse for doing nothing. And that is the response. Nothing gets done. So Colleen goes missing. The police barely respond. Evelyn goes missing. Same town. You know, same street. The police do look for her. They go, they go looking for her. There's a decent effort to search houses, search rivers. And then, you know, we don't think these two, these two crimes are linked. Uh, and then it kind of dies down. I, I just got to say, what four-year-old goes on a walkabout? Well, that's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then Clinton goes missing. And, you know, I've spoken to the police who were there at the, at the, at the scene at the time. Clinton goes missing and yeah, they start to worry. And then Clinton's body's found. So he's the first body to be found. And these detectives have said to me, right, at this point, alarm bells are ringing. We've now got a serial killer on the loose. And that's where we are today. So we're now, best part of 30 years later, those three kids have never seen any kind of justice. You know, the person who killed them has never been convicted. Whoever killed those kids is a serial killer, and that serial killer is walking free today. One thing you did, you want to talk about Jack Hart in this interview, or what do you want to? What do you want to know? Well, I'll just let the listeners know here that there, if I if I got this right, a very 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 strong suspect, a guy who was present at all three of these parties or events yeah. when they went missing, and I think he was tried a couple times. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Each of these three kids goes missing after a party. Um, 
Just to be clear here, we're talking about three different parties on three different evenings. A party which takes place on what they call the, the Bowerville Mission. So the Bowerville Mission is a part of the town of Bowerville where all the, the Aboriginal people are living. And it goes back to the kind of the colonial history of the country where the, the white fellows essentially set up segregated areas, which they called missions, in this case, uh, for the Aboriginal people to live. And, and it's essentially, you go to Bowerville now, and it's a completely segregated town. You've got the white part of town, which is where most people live, and then you've got the black part of town, which is where the Aboriginal people live in and around the mission. And it's between the, when it, when the murders took place, it was between the, the cemetery and the piggery. And it had been on the other side of the road, but they moved it because the white folk wanted to build a golf course where the black folk were living. Okay. So they, they moved them off that onto what is now the mission. So anyway, each of these three kids disappears after a party. Um, this guy, James Hart, is present at each of those parties. And he's, he's a white guy. He's a big drinker, smokes a bit of dope, always turns up with alcohol. And he's had, you know, he's had relationships or affairs with a few of the, the Aboriginal women in the community. So he's there when they all go missing. And then Clinton actually disappears from his caravan. Hart's living in a caravan at this point on his mum's property and Clinton stays over that night. Clinton disappears from the caravan the next day. But Clinton's shoes are left just outside the caravan. And then when Clinton's body is discovered, he's found with a pillowcase from Hart's caravan shoved down the front of his shorts. The more the police worked on it, they found that there was evidence from, from witnesses or, or from the accounts of the victims in the past that Hart had sort of sexually molested Colleen in the past. So he had a sexual interest in her. And that the night of Evelyn's disappearance, she was in bed with her mum, who was a fairly young woman at the time. Her mum woke up and her trousers were around her ankles and Hart had been seen in that house late that night, in the early morning of the night. And then when Clinton woke up, he'd been in bed with his girlfriend, and she woke up in bed in Hart's caravan, and her trousers had been removed. And so there's all this, there's a kind of a pattern of offending, if you like, yeah. And I've, I've got to stress at this point, you know, for every good legal reason, and also, I guess, just kind of moral reason, you know, Hart was put on trial, Um over the murder of Clinton and later over the murder of Evelyn and he was found not guilty both times. So as it stands, in you know, eyes of the law, the guy is not guilty. After the break, we'll learn how a not guilty verdict was reached despite seemingly overwhelming evidence. We're talking with Dan Box from his home in the UK. Dan is a crime reporter and host of the podcast Balreville about the unsolved murders of three Aboriginal children in Australia. We are back with true crime reporter Dan Box talking about his podcast Balreville. I asked Dan to explain how this strong suspect named Jay Hart could have been found not guilty. Okay, so start, step back. You've got a guy who the police like for these murders. And they suspect him right from the start. And when I met that detective decades later, he still thought Hart was his best suspect. Right. And, and he was still pursuing him. Um, so it gets to court and, and something happens where you've got three murders, which 
to you and me and you know any kind of layman looking at them you'd think there's a connection between them the kids all disappear from the same street at the same sort of time the bodies are found within a kind of all connected to that road but the courts look at that at the time and they say right well we're not going to hear those cases together because according to the laws at the time the evidence that connects them isn't good enough to say that they were definitely committed by the same person and if we hear them together then it might be prejudicial to to Hart who we who is the suspect at this point to hear them all together so we're going to hear them separately okay but what the what the effect of that is that the jury only ever hear that one child disappeared from Barrowville so the jury are kind of essentially told an untruth they're told in the case of, say, Clinton's murder, Clinton disappears from Barrowville. No one mentions that two of the kids disappear in similar circumstances in the months before that. No one mentions that another body is found next to the same road that Clinton's has discovered. And so they find him not guilty. In fairness, there's no DNA, because this was before DNA technology was available. And there's no eyewitness that puts him there. And the other thing is that because the police didn't do an awful lot about these disappearances at the time, you don't know what evidence they missed because they weren't out there treating this as yeah. a potential, you know, triple homicide right from the start. So you don't know what was lost from that lack of action. So they, so he's found not guilty of Clinton's murder. Years and years later, the police have another go at it. And they, and this is under the detective I, I spoke to who's kind of been the driving force for a long, long time. And they try him over Evelyn's murder. Same thing, though. He's only being... The jury are only told about one murder. And there's conflicting evidence. And he's found not guilty again. And that's kind of where it sat for decades. So where are we now? Where are we now? So we did that podcast and it just got some traction. It went gangbusters. And I think it was a five-part series. And we had... Part four, they'd all gone out and we were we had like a few days to get part five together and it had been scripted and edited and, and, and it was all ready to go. But we'd constantly been trying to get in touch with Hart himself. You know, partly because you want to see if he's going to talk and partly because you've got to ask his side of the story. It's only fair. So right from, right from the start, I'd been driving up to where he was living, which wasn't in Barrowville anymore, knocking on his door, trying his phone and getting absolutely nowhere. And we gave it one last shot and we drove up outside his door, nothing. Mm. Got back to the office the next day and there's an answer phone lights flashing on my phone and I pick it up and it's him and he's called me at work and he just says, you know, this is you know, James Hart. I uh, want to talk to you. So I've been saying James and it's Jay and I am. Ah. The reason for that is I'm looking at your name on this Google Meet screen. Oh, it's Jay Hart, yeah. It's Jay Hart. Okay. And I think I've been saying Jack Hart, but it's Jay Hart. Okay, so look, we've both been wrong. The truth <laughs> is that his name's Jay Hart. Um, look, so I get, this, I get back to the office and the answer phone light's flashing red. And I pick it up and there's this voice. And it's dull, heavy voice. And he says, hi, Dan, this is Jay Hart. I think you've been trying to talk to me. And this is my number. And so I call him back and I record the call. And he picks up and he talks. And the thing is, he has never spoken, never spoken before. He, he 
has never spoken to the police about all three murders. Mm. He declined to give evidence in court. He declined to give evidence at an inquest. And he spoke to the police right at the beginning about Clinton. And that's it for decades. And then he's on the phone. So I, I listened to that episode. Did I get it right that he said he listen, had been listening to the podcast? Yeah, he'd been listening to the podcast. And so I've got, he's on the phone and no preparation, nothing. And I'm literally standing there doing an interview with a guy who the police suspect to be a serial killer. And he's answering every question. He's answering it and he knows the case. I get the feeling that he is literally sitting surrounded by court documents. So when I say, well, what about this? He, it's almost like he reaches for the pile of documents and says, well, you have to remember that in such and such and such and such, this happened and you can't trust that evidence for that reason. Mm -hmm. Or at court, this happened and that was discounted for that reason. He has an answer for everything, but his answers aren't always very convincing. So I mentioned how one of the, the victims, Clinton, was found with Jay Hart's pillow slip down his shorts. And so I asked Jay about that. And Jay says, well, maybe he'd gone looking for some pot. And he took my pillow slip to carry the pot home in because hmm. there were kind of, you know, illegal cannabis plantations in the woods there. And I was just like, what? So he walked. So my thought process is you're saying that Clinton walked barefoot at night several kilometers into the woods to carry with your pillow slip to collect cannabis. Mm -hmm. But that's his version. And what he says over and over again is, but it's a possibility. And like the judge said in the court, as long as there's another possibility that explains these facts, then you can't find me guilty. He comes back to that again and again. And the thing is, he's absolutely right. That is how the court works. Did he ever say he's not guilty? Yeah, he do, you know, he, no, he denies it. He absolutely, you know, straight up denies it as well and continues to deny it and always has. Um, but he's on the phone. And so... The last episode then becomes essentially this long conversation with with the suspect at the heart of this. And the other thing that happens while this is going on, because I'm working on a newspaper, I remember, but the day we launched, the editor shut himself in his office and he listened to the first four episodes back to back. Mm -hmm. And he walked out and he walked past my desk and he just put his hand down on it and he said, we are going to send this guy to court. And after that, the newspaper just started to campaign. So I thought we might write a, you know, a small piece in the paper and it would get on the bottom of page two and that would be great. But suddenly the, the editor is saying he wants a story every single day. And a lot of them are running off the front page. And what a newspaper like that can do, so it goes back to what the detective was saying. At that point, politicians start asking questions about it. And my editor deliberately, and, you know, this is an editor's privilege, I guess. He's deliberately targeting the attorney general. So he's running my news stories, but he's also running comment pieces saying, you know, where is the attorney general in mm -hmm. this? Is she blind to the racism that's been going on in this case? What is she going to do about it? Yeah. And there's some lobbying that's going on behind the scenes as well, you know, between the paper and the politicians about, are you going to sort this out? And so those two things together, the fact that this podcast goes gangbusters people are listening to it the newspaper is now campaigning on it the families are campaigning on it as well they're marching on the state parliament and, and holding demonstrations and at the same time the police are quite openly saying 
we're going to put another application in to send this back to court. And if I'm honest, the newspaper and the police and the families are all cooperating at this point. It's a concerted campaign. You've got this idea of journalistic objectivity that you're supposed to step back and, and not get involved. And yeah, that's great. But also, three kids were murdered and yeah. no one's ever been jailed for it. So at this point, objectively, I think that's wrong. And and so I, I do kind of lose that classic journalistic detachment. I'd like it to go to court. And my cam- my newspaper is, edit- is campaigning for it to go to court. And then it goes to court. The attorney general comes back and says, right, we are going to send this to court. We're going to send it to the appeal court and see if they'll overturn those not guilty verdicts. And I found out afterwards that a big part of the reason for that was in the interview that Jay Hart did with, with me, I asked him, well, how would you feel if this went back to court? And he said, look, I wouldn't welcome it because it's a lot of stress on the family and it's a lot of stress on, on you know, financially. But there is a part of me that would like to see it go to court because it's an opportunity to clear my name. Huh. And apparently when the Attorney General's lawyers heard that, it removed a big obstacle in terms of <laughs> the procedural fairness of sending it to court. So it, all of these things came together. It's like a perfect storm. And wow. you know, I was caught up in the middle of it. And at this point, I'm kind of a passenger to it. Yeah. And he gets sent back to court and it goes to the appeal court. And, you know, courts take years and everything slows down. And But it gets to court and the appeal court hears it. And it's the first time ever that those three murders have been discussed in the same criminal court at the same time. Because they'd always been treated as separate cases. Right. But now you've got judges saying okay, let's talk about all three of them. And you've got lawyers arguing about the connections between them and the similarities between them. Hmm. And and the appeal court hears the case and it hands down its verdict and it says... Find out what the appeals court decided and why after this short break. Now back to Dan Box and our discussion about the podcast Bowerville. And the appeal court hears the case and it hands down its verdict and it says we are not going to overturn those not guilty verdicts. That's it. We're going to let them stand. But the reason they say that is really complicated. (laughs) And it comes down to, and this is where you get into questions about what is justice. Mm Because, you know, at this point, you've had had an appeal court hearing. So it's gone to almost the highest court in the country. And they've heard it in full and they've handed down their their verdict and you could say that is the justice system it has played out but the reason that they give for for not overturning those not guilty verdicts isn't because of the strength of the evidence it's because of a procedural reason so they're saying that the way some of that evidence was tendered or not tendered at the time of the original trials means essentially some of it is now inadmissible and what it comes down to is actually the definition of a single word in the legislation. And that word is the word adduced, which basically means that something, evidence has been presented to a court or tendered to a court. But the exact definition of that word isn't given in the legislation. So it could mean that evidence is able to be presented to a court. It could mean that the evidence is tendered to the court, which means the court has accepted it as evidence. And so the appeal court kind of basically comes down and said, look, there was some evidence at the time 
that could have been adduced, i.e. presented to the court, but wasn't for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, for legal reasons, because of the way this legislation is written, it could have been adduced, it wasn't adduced, therefore it's not admissible now. And so the whole thing falls on the fact that some of this evidence wasn't presented to a court at the time and that the definition of a juice that the appeal court judges are taking means that that means it is inadmissible now. And, you know, all three families are sitting in court to hear that. And there's this huge disconnect between, you know, you've got the families. These are Aboriginal families from a small country town. Some of them have taken, you know, coaches for six or seven hours to be here. And you've got these... All white judges, all white court, all white police officers, all white lawyers, all white reporters, you know, sitting there. It's just two very different worlds. And the white judges are saying, look, this meaning of this word in our laws uh, means that we're never going to overturn those not guilty verdicts. So there won't be anyone sent to jail for the murder of your children. And you've got these black families just looking at that. And I remember talking to the mum of one of those kids, so that the youngest kid, Evelyn, who was murdered, immediately after that verdict came down, and she said, I just didn't understand a word of what they were saying. Right. Because the judges are talking in, you know, legalese. It's complicated. I remember reading their judgment the next day, and I had to go through it three or four times to really understand what they were saying. These families didn't have a chance to understand that. All they knew was that there was not going to be anyone put on trial or sent to jail for the killing of their children. Well, I just want to say, everyone listening, that even though you just sort of heard the outcome of this um, trial, please listen to this podcast. It's riveting. I got to ask you, were you ever, like when you went out to try to find Jay Hart in the podcast, were you scared at all? Yeah, there was one moment, but it's a funny story. Jay was living in a pretty, not that rough, rough enough part of the world now. And we turned up with a plan to stake him out. So we were literally just going to park our car, sit in there and wait for him to come back. As a newspaper reporter, you kind of get used to doing that. But that was the plan for the day. But I hadn't thought it through. So I turned up in a brand new car that we'd borrowed from the the company fleet. And it just happened to be that this one was brand new. Um, I was wearing a college shirt and no one on that street was driving a brand new car or wearing a college shirt. And we drive up and I hadn't done a recce of his place properly. So we drove up and I kind of thought the only place I can park the car is behind this boat that was parked up opposite someone had just parked their boat on the side of the road so I parked there and we sat there and then within minutes people in the street knew we were there (sighs) and they were looking at us and they were talking about us quite openly like in the street pointing at us gangs of men and the, the group just got bigger and bigger and bigger and closer and closer and then I looked up in the rearview mirror and I can see a pair of eyes looking through the back window straight at me. Oh my gosh. One bloke slams on the side of the window, you know, demands to know who we are, demands to have photo ID. You know, what do we think we're doing here? It turns into a a fairly ugly exchange, a fairly ugly crowd scene where I'm basically saying, look, he said, are you cops? You know, brand new car, college shirt, are you cops? No, we're not cops, we're journalists. He doesn't believe me. We get out of the car, we talk it down, we get, you know, we're fine. And then after that, 
And this old woman who lives there comes up to me and says, look, the real reason everyone was so angry was you parked your car right up, right outside the house where someone had been arrested the week before for child abuse. And so we turned up a bunch of strangers with a big camera um, yeah. because we had a photographer for the paper there. And they'd kind of got it into their heads that we were either cops or we were paedophiles. Um, that we were some kind of paedophile friend of the guy who'd been arrested from this house. Oh, right. So I'd managed to park my car outside an accused paedophile's house, convincing everyone that I was also a paedophile. When I finally convinced them we were journalists, they basically settled down. Um, but yeah, that was the only moment I thought things were going to get a bit difficult. I was going to say, you must feel, don't you feel like you've done a great work? I don't, yeah, I, I kind of come and go with that one. Like, yeah, I'm really proud of that podcast. Um, I'm proud of it because it was hard and we did a good job. And it was, you know, it's a once in a career opportunity for someone like Jay Hart, a suspected serial killer, to call you up at work and then agree to be recorded. Yeah. That's never probably going to happen to me again. So I'm proud of all of that. And I'm proud of being part of that campaign that got it sent back to court. Mm -hmm. um, could always have done better, though, couldn't you? One of the things that really, there's two things that really bug me is, you know, there's a lot of families of these kids out there. And, and, and some of them, they weren't desperately impressed with, you know, the way I'd reported on it. You know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Mm -hmm. All of the parents of the kids that I spoke to were, were all, have always been really good, have always been on side, but not everyone thinks I'm the best person to have done it. Um, hmm. You know, and partly I'm a white fella turning up and telling a black community story, and that's sure. that's never ideal. Um, and the other thing is that the judges in the appeal court, when they did say we're not going to send this back to court, they said you needed fresh and compelling evidence to get this sent back to court. And the only bit of fresh evidence that we think you've really got is that interview that Dan Box did with Jay Hart, mm. which had been tendered as part of the evidence during the appeal. They said that's completely fresh. That could never have been tendered in court before. Right. But it's not, it's not compelling. I didn't ask the right question. If maybe if I'd asked just one more question and it had been the question that, that Jay Hart stumbled over assuming Jay Hart is the guy who did it and he's been found not guilty and he's got every right to presumption of innocence. But maybe if I'd asked the right question and got the right answer, then maybe the judges would have said that interview is both fresh and compelling. And then maybe we wouldn't be having this quite this conversation today. Dan Box, thank you so much for joining us on Dakota Spotlight. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, thank you for your time. I'm really grateful. This was Dan Box talking about the podcast Bowerville. Check out Bowerville anywhere you get your podcasts. I'll spell the title for you one more time. It's B-O-W-R-A-Ville. B-O-W-R-A-V-I-L-L-E. My name is James Walner, and this is Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.